0: You're listening to Forward, a podcast from faculty at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, hosted by Michelle Knight, Josh Jip, Madison Pierce, and James Arcadi. Forward invites listeners into the mission of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School through conversations with faculty, staff, and guests.
1: Welcome to Forward, a TED's faculty podcast. I'm Madison Pierce.
2: And I'm Josh Chip.
1: Today, we're sitting down with Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates, who's pastor at Progressive Baptist Church and a key leader in Chicago with deep commitments to his flourishing. Charlie is a graduate of the TED's MDiv and PhD programs and a contributing author to several projects, including Letters to a Birmingham Jail, Say It. And he's even currently working on a forthcoming book on Christianity and social justice. And that'll be published relatively soon with InterVarsity Press. We'll hear more about that later, I'm sure. Uh, So, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. It's a wonderful uh, pleasure to have you here.
2: Thank you guys so
3: much for the invitation.
2: Glad to be here. Charlie, I know our audience would love to hear you talk just a little bit about your path to pastoral ministry. You've been at Progressive now for about 10 years. Is that right? That's true. Could you just give us a little bit of uh, uh, some of the highlights in terms of how you became the Reverend Dr. Dates, um, having pastored now 10 years? Yeah, man. Well, first of
3: all, let me say again, thank you to both of you for this kind invitation uh, to be with you. I've been looking forward. Uh, To it, Uh, pun intended. I've been looking forward to it. (laughs) Nice,
1: love it. But um,
3: I, uh, I really think that pastoral ministry is a calling. My orientation to the MDiv program at TEDS in the fall of 2002, the theme of it was called "Answering the Call," Mm -hmm. and that is that that was such a welcome doormat in one sense to me at TEDS because uh, Madison and Josh, as far back as I can remember, I felt called. To preach, mm. and it—it's a kind of unshakable burden, you know. And Jeremiah says, basically, I would give up. He's having a rough time in ministry. He says, "Oh, but I can't, because this—this mm. this word of God is like fire, shut up in my bones. Yep. That is my testimony." And so, I don't preach because I um, don't have other interest. I preach because I can do nothing else. This—this mm. mm. this is it. This is the—the the gravitas uh, that God has assigned to my life. And so after undergrad, uh, I started preaching the week before I left for undergrad, August 16, 1998. Oh, man, now it sounds like <laughs> I went to the University of Illinois down at Urbana, Champaign, and, uh, and I did a, a dual focus in rhetoric and speech communication. I was looking at Yale. I got into Yale Divinity School, and I was looking at a Master's in Human Resource Management in industrial relations at Cornell and at U of I, and, uh, and Dr. Dwight Perry, uh, who is a professor in the pastoral studies department at Moody, uh, he and I had met almost in passing, and the deacons at our church had told him of my interest in going to seminary, and I wanted to see Moody, and he said, well, I'll take you, Moody, if you let me show you the Southern school up north. So that was my introduction to Trinity. I had never heard of Trinity. Wow. And so Dr. Perry is the first African-American PhD out of Trinity, and he and uh, Greg Waybright were friends. And so when I got to Ted's and I love Ted's, I want to couch everything that I have to say. And I love Ted's. But coming from Illinois, the sprawling campus with, you know, 40,000 students, I just I was like, is is this what it is? You know, the pond and the <laughs> library. We didn't even have the Waybright Center or the Rodin yeah. building at that yeah. point. So wow. I, uh, I, I, the only way I can explain my getting the tits is that it was only God. It was the, the Lord had made it clear uh, that he wanted me to be there. And so I started on this journey. I think there were about six or seven other African-American students at the Mm -hmm. time. Josh and I were actually in, in the NBIC program at the same time. Yeah. And And we had come from varying walks of life, Elmer Whitehead and Manuel Scott and David Miles and uh, so a a number of others that I was introduced to uh, something beyond the monolith of the black church that I had come to love and know. And and so my world just started to expand. I. I didn't know much about white evangelicalism. And here I am at this predominantly white evangelical school. Yeah. I'm getting to meet black guys and girls who are uh, from other parts of the country who've experienced church differently than I have. Yeah. And, and so I'm starting to feel like there is a, there's a broader assignment to my life than what I thought coming into TEDS. And that's how it played out. At the end of the MDiv program, I got called to a church in Chicago as the uh, assistant assistant uh, essentially assistant associate pastor, the Salem Baptist Church of Chicago. And uh, I served there for five years uh, alongside Pastor James Meeks. And then some at some point during that, Dr. Willem Van Gameren, uh, chair of the PhD department at, at Trinity, Old Testament scholar extraordinaire. I had taken one of his um, Old Testament classes toward the end of my time at, at uh the MDIP program. And he asked if I would sit down and do lunch one day.
0: Hmm.
3: And so I was nervous and you know, sure, you know, we'll sit down. And man, it's like, he shook me. He said, I've taken the liberty to look at your grades. This is toward the end of my program. He said, and I've, I've listened to the kind of questions you ask in my class. And I really think you have the capability to pursue a PhD and I think you should do it. So first time anybody had kind of put that on me. It, it was that he believed in my ability to do it really more than my own awareness of a capability to do it. And so I told him with all due respect, I appreciate it, but I feel called to the pastorate, not to the professorate. And he said, you don't think as a pastor, you know, you can carry a PhD. And I said, man, I'm doing good just to do this MDiv and I'm happy, you know, <laughs> and he, he said, no, he said, I, I think you owe it to yourself and to your community to to do it. And so, I graciously bowed out of that conversation and he would email me every six months or so. And so two, three years out of the MDiv program, I said, man, listen, is that door still open? I'll I'll talk about it. And so I explored it. And it really, to to do the PhD at TEDS at that time, it was two years of full-time coursework and then you had to do your comps and dissertation proposal. That's too much in one sense to do while under the weight of pastoral ministry. But because I was an associate pastor and and had a bit more flexibility, I scaled my time back at the church, did my coursework. And right at the end of my coursework, I was in my last class, New Testament class, the revelation with Dr. Grant Osborne, I got called to progressive. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to finish my coursework before I started the senior pastor. That's how I made it. Yeah. Um, as as you can imagine, it's too much work, you know, yeah. to have like two full time jobs, and then from there, Doctor Sweeney and Bruce Fields basically held my hand and walked with me for four years, um, essentially three and a half, four years to finish that program. And I can tell you, I'm <laughs> legit. Nobody gave me nothing. <laughs> like I got the scars <laughs> to prove it, um, yeah. and and yet I am seeing God use that yeah. in my. Ministry in my preaching, in the the work in our church, in our community, and in the kind of itinerant,
2: broader national ministry God has given me. Yeah, that's really cool.
1: That's incredible, Charlie. I, I mean. I'd love to hear more about some of the ways that you see your uh, research playing out in your ministry, but it probably would be good for us to back up a little bit and to hear about this project that you completed. I mean, so you're working on uh, uh, kind of the distinctives of Black preaching and the contributions of Black preaching, and you're focusing especially on Donald Parson, is that right? That's right. Could you tell us a little bit more about your project?
3: Yeah, so I have had a... a bent toward history for as, as long as I can remember, which is why church history was a natural fit for me uh, more than Old Testament was in the PhD program. But the, if you know much about the scholarship on Black preaching, it comes out of schools like Princeton uh, with Kenyatta Gilbert and Cleophis LaRue or Frank Thomas uh, or Henry Mitchell. And so they, the scholarship on the history of Black preaching has been dominated by kind of East Coast Um, black scholars, which is fantastic. What I wanted to do was to wrestle part of that conversation back to the grassroots of the Midwest and to look at Chicago as an ideal place to study black preaching. So anyone who knows of the shifting demographics in America knows that around 1915, uh, there's this massive wave of chocolate people from the American South to the North, specifically to Chicago alone. And it comes in waves so much so that by 1966, I'm actually writing this morning for another piece I'm doing. And I'm looking at Dr. King's visit to Chicago in 1966. By 1966, King comes to Chicago, um, not because it's the fairest city in the land, but because there are more black people here mm-hmm. than in Cook County, than there were the entire state of Mississippi by that point. It's that much of a seismic shift. Wow. And so when you want to study black church and black preaching, Really, Chicago is an ideal place from the 60s through the 90s to study it. And so we picked a preacher to kind of look at uh, what what did someone who had not been trained by white evangelicals and at the same time, who who was not trained by a white mainline Protestants on the East Coast who was a stellar preacher. Think about it. And, and Parson came up because he was invited to the white house under two or three presidents. He had preached all seven of the major black denominations conventions. He was a, um, highly touted itinerant preacher. And he in Chicago built that, that church did the church he pastor. They built the first Christian school from the ground up for black kids in Chicago. So you've got somebody who's whose national and local influence is enormous. And we just wanted to find out what did he think about the Bible and how did that factor into his preaching mm. as a way to wrestle again, the conversation about black preaching back to its kind of grassroots. And what we discovered is, aside from some of the popular writing is that black preaching has held a very high view of scripture and a high Christology and a corresponding resistance to systemic injustice for as far back in the 1900s as we could trace. Mm. Wow. Um, and that is not to say that all black preaching is like that, but it was underrepresented in the scholarship in that regard. And so I, when I finish this piece I'm, I'm doing with InterVarsity now, I want to revisit that as a more popular publication to make some kind of contribution more popularly again to the history and development of black preaching in America, that it's not white. It's not been baptized in whiteness. And it's not been, right now, it's not co-opted by evangelicalism. It Mm. just Mm. is, it's true to its tenor and its tone, um, yet and still, even though it doesn't get a lot of play.
1: Yeah,
2: That's really good. There's so much, so much there, Charlie, I'd love to ask you about. And um, maybe let me press in a little bit too, I I love how you said it in terms of, you know, for a long time, the tackling of systemic injustices has been coming out of the Black Church's commitment to a high view of Scripture and yeah. a high view of Christology. I mean, um, mm-hmm. I think that helps us get it. Probably, what are some of the uh, some of the distinctiveness of the Black Church? Could you share a little bit more? Uh, about what that looks like maybe in your context in the city of Chicago um, so we can get a little bit of a flavor for what progressive is like what um, you know what a healthy black church is like in some ways
3: yeah well you know so let me say first of all that the caricatures we see in the media about black church and black experience are often Uh, based upon the kind of dialogical nature of black preaching. And Mm. and that is black preaching is very much a kind of um, uh, call and response, uh, cognitive and emotive doctrinal dance, Uh as it were from pulpit to pew. And, and so I think if you were to come to progressive, you would feel some of that. It is, there's no separation of head and heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, in our preaching. And because of that, preaching in the black context has to meet people socially where they are. I actually think, to be honest with you, it's not just because of the cultural implications. Scripture itself is keen upon meeting people where they are. When you look at Israel, in the Old Testament, they are longing for a just king. They are longing for righteous reign and rulership, mm-hmm. yep. which paves the way for their anticipation of, of Jesus Christ. People everywhere. And, and the Bible is written on the margins of oppressed people. People everywhere are looking for leadership that yep. will make wrong right. And and how that is lived out in the Old Testament, it was never merely vertical. You know, this, this notion of the separation of church and state is really more American than it is anything else. It it was supposed to be the people of God and particularly the King leading the people in righteousness, but the people of God, bringing the mind of God to bear upon the public square so that orphans and widows and strangers and mm-hmm. foreigners were able to thrive and to flourish. But not mm-hmm. only that, the Lord seems to get really angry in scripture when, uh, poor people are taken advantage of when scales are unjust and when, when the haves manipulate the have nots. And so there's, there's a lot within the kind of social structure of the communal life of the people of God that, that gives way for application of God's word. And I think that's the, that's part of the dialogical doctrinal dance that happens in black church and in black Mm -hmm. preaching. It is meeting people where they are because our gospel is social in the sense that it affects how we live horizontally. Yeah. It, it does not take away from Christ being the only way uh, it, it in no way robs God of his high loftiness, but it calls us to live out the ethics of the law of the old Testament and the truth of the gospel in ways where people can feel we actually are the people of God. Yeah. And, and so what that means is beyond the pulpit, beyond the preaching, our church At churches, I mean, we're one of many. Churches are taking to their ministries a very practical way to live out this gospel conviction. So if you join Progressive, part of your new members curriculum is we're going to ask you, are you registered to vote? And if you're not, we're going to kind of insist (laughs) that you register to vote. Um, We're not going to tell you who to vote for, but we're just going to say we have a responsibility to engage the public square. Uh, We have, like right now, uh, we're waiting on 250 Google Chromebooks to come. They've been on back order. We're going to give them to families at three local schools in our area. So we partnered up with um, the quarterback of the Chicago Bears, Nick Foles, and our great running back back in the day, Matt Forte, uh, to help us get some of the stuff underway. When the pandemic first struck, we learned that people who are on SNAP benefits, the Mental Nutrition Assistance Program, what I grew up knowing as food stamps, they could not use those SNAP benefits to uh, order groceries online and get Mm -hmm. them delivered to their home. And so in the middle of the the start of the raging of the pandemic, when we're trying to get people to stay out, poor people, by virtue of their benefits, have to leave home to get Mm -hmm. food. So we got (laughs) on a call with the USDA and and, uh, found out that they didn't have the technology to link with Instacart. And and so our team came together by the grace of God and raised about $450,000 with some other churches in partnership. And we gave away these Instacart gift codes to people, to elders, seniors, and the people uh, who had SNAP benefits. And there, there are so many things I could point to right now. I mean, I just walked out of the parking lot. There's an 18-wheeler trailer there, refrigerator trailer. We're giving out 1,200 boxes of food each week, again, like many other Church is because to meet the felt need of people, particularly people who are on the margins, is to gain access to the real need, uh, which is that of Jesus Christ. And the church, because we know what righteousness is, has to bring that to bear, uh, again, for justice in the public square. One last thing about progressive. We're working with City hall right now, um, trying to get zoning approval for this little we bought a little hut, really, two blocks down the road. And uh, we're converting it to the Progressive Center for Counseling and Justice. Nice. So we're linking with two counseling ministries downtown, Christian counseling ministries, and making ours as a kind of satellite site so that people can actually walk to the facility and get, we all need counseling. Uh, right. but, but, but to get some much needed counseling and we can do some lower level organizing, community organizing for justice projects. So that's one side. I mean, you know, on the other side, we got married couples ministry and singles ministry, and we got really real media ministry now as a result of the pandemic. (laughs) Um, So we got those things, but, but we view a healthy church as not compromising on the truth of scripture, but at the same time, caring about the least, the lost, and the left out.
2: Yeah, that's good.
1: I love that, Charlie. Thank you so much. And I I know, so, I don't, I grew up in Texas, you know, our listeners have- uh, Texas Arcana. I I did, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I definitely, um, you know, I grew up being taught that the black churches across town that they had, they didn't respect scripture the way that we did. And really, I assume now that that's probably the way that we explained why the black people in our community weren't present is we had to come up with some strange excuse for for why they weren't there. The the reality was that you know that they were not probably not welcome in in my community at least um or, and various other things that um you know that play out in in that area. So this is all all this to say that that's been a part of, of my journey is figuring out um you know th- some of those biases and things. But I think that um what you're highlighting is that um, my, my clear bias about, um, the respect for scripture and the, um, expository preaching and all those things that we really value that they were absolutely present in the black church, but, um, that the black church adds to that, the, the commitment to social justice. So, um, I I wonder if you could articulate for us more. I mean, um, it must be incredibly difficult for you to hold those two things together and to do them well. So, um, how, how, um, (laughs) I don't know if I can, if I can even articulate the question. Um, How are you able to do what seems like so much more than uh, than a lot in terms of, you know, reaching out to the community, but still continuing to uphold those those commitments to, yeah. yeah.
3: Well, let me me be careful um, to say that the African-American church has not fit neatly in the white evangelical mold or model and has been a-okay with that um so not all of our preaching of course is expositional and neither is that of per se evangelicalism i mean i don't think charles spurgeon was an expositor per se but he certainly was one of the greatest preachers of his lifetime and we're still talking about him now there there has been i i fear and and i certainly can say this about my time at at trinity that there has been a kind of implicit teaching that the white way is the right way Mm -hmm. and the reality is we're seeing in these yet to be united states right now just how wrong the white way of doing christianity and white theology and white politics actually is what it has produced the fruit of it is uh, on clear display and so Mm -hmm. i i think the the benefit though of the diversity within black preaching and black theology is that it does not loathe white people and it does not loathe the kind of captivity of our ancestors to the point where, uh, we hate y'all, you know, (laughs) Mm. that's, that's not it. There's a genuine love ethic that, that comes out of it so that we can get along with people with whom we disagree and we don't have to separate fellowship. With, with people who do not necessarily read scripture the way that we do. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to be very careful. Uh, if anybody doubts my sense of orthodoxy, that's their problem, not, not mine. Mm-hmm. Like I'm super clear on that. So when I say we can get along with people who read scripture differently than we do, that does not necessarily mean that we adopt foreign mm-hmm. ways of reading scripture or we debase the authority of it. It's just we don't villainize and criminalize people. Mm-hmm. who who see it differently. There, there is a winsome witness to actually living the gospel out rather than just printing theological treatises mm-hmm. about what the gospel is. Mm-hmm. And so when you've not owned publishing houses or radio stations or academies, your church has been your publications. Yeah. And, and I think when you look at the work of black churches and even in Chicago, I mean, time will fail us. We don't have enough time to talk about how churches saved whole blocks and neighborhoods through gentrification and beyond all of that to keep equity in people's homes. All of that stuff seems like it has nothing to do with the gospel, uh, but it very much springs out of affirming the value and the dignity of human life. When you look at that, those are publications in and of itself. And so, I think there is a, for me, how do I do it? I, I function in the kind of trajectory uh, in, the, in the lane of the movement in which our people have come. And I am hopefully continuing that, not necessarily adding to it. And so uh, I, that's, that's one way. History benefits me. But the other way is, and the seminary can learn from this, this idea, a lot more is caught than it is taught. And so being in a space around practitioners who are figuring it out and who are doing it as a way of rubbing off on us. And and so, Madison, I would say I'm the beneficiary of multiple streams of good models, and I'm hoping to be that for others. And then I'm trying to read scripture from the lens of the oppressed, not from the center of the empire. But as I read scripture, I'm, I'm reading the Exodus narrative from this view of the slaves mm. who were delivered and not from the view of Pharaoh. Now, a lot of people will say, I, I do the same thing. Well, it's a little different when you actually have some taste of oppression in mm. your mouth. Mm. And then the rest of scripture for that matter, uh, I'm, I'm looking at it from the lens of a people who are waiting to be set free and from yeah. creation that yeah. is waiting to, to, for the revelation of the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. I, I, that's the view. And so um, I don't wrestle with the libertarian themes, as it were, in Scripture, because I'm able to read Scripture from the lens of people who have been marginalized, shackled, and oppressed. So that's one way I think mm-hmm. in which we do it. We don't rob Scripture by doing that. Uh, hopefully, we actually uh, let the God of Scripture. Uh, speak into the plight of people. And, and when you look at the global landscape, right, most of the world lives under the foot of someone else or something else. Mm-hmm. It, in America, the church seemed to have been started in cahoots with the empire. And and so, its, it's theology is more imperialistic than it is anything else, triumphalistic for that matter. It's, it It is not really cared as deeply as it should about the, the poor, the forgotten, the foreigner and the stranger. I'll stop. Yeah,
1: amen. Yeah, thanks for redeeming my fumbling question. I'll I'll kick it over to Josh in a second, but I will say that I I love that at TEDS, we do have international students, especially when we talk about Romans, for example, because the natural way of reading Romans 13 for Americans, or at least white white Americans, is very different than it is for the people, you know, people from China, for example, uh, especially from like Hong Kong and stuff. And we very quickly can have some really fruitful conversations about how we read Scripture from our particular settings and read yeah. faithfully. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. Um, Charlie, one of the things I think I, I've heard you say, and I've heard you preach, and I've heard this that makes me reflect on sort of uh, a. Di- um, how often we're taught hermeneutically you do exegesis. And then only after you do exegesis, are you able then to take the second step, right. And move it into application or, you know, or whatever. And obviously it's, you know, that that has some good motives in terms of really trying to honor the text, but it doesn't always necessarily make for the best theology or hermeneutics, which is something I've learned honestly, and seen on display more from, uh, uh, people who aren't white that actually read the word and it, and and are able then to in a in a in a powerful and winsome way direct it immediately to the situation of God's mm. people or the situation of their communities and i've heard you preach um i've you know heard you and seen you you know do this on multiple occasions um if you've never heard to our listeners if you've never heard um charlie preach you need to do it uh just yeah. and i'm you know sorry for giving uh you know just giving you this little shout out here charlie but it's 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 really powerful and edifying and i assume that doesn't just like where does that come from where who are the, your models or um, you're gifted, but obviously you uh, have worked hard, and you've had models. How? Uh, who were some of those models? Who influenced you? How do you um, continue to improve as a preacher? I know I've got a few questions. Right no, no, my, that's but. good.
3: Well, first of all, let me let me say you're very kind. Um, and those uh, comments in my mind register as undeserved. But I, I've i learned not to, you know, you don't buy your own press kind of thing. But I really am grateful that people think something of my preaching. You know, like I yeah. go home and I'm like, hey, my mom passed away this summer. But I, you know, my mother was my big cheerleader, my yeah. biggest cheerleader. And she yeah. believed, you know, so I, I go home and I'm like, hey, I'm a preacher. Like it actually they came back to church <laughs> this week kind of thing. That's, yeah. that's really how I feel. No lies. Yeah. Like, are think going to come back next week when this is over? Um, but but my models. Okay, so let's talk uh, Bruce Fields just real fast. Uh, who yeah. in memoriam yes. of, of yes. Bruce Fields? Um, Bruce Fields was for the longest time the only yeah. full time African American faculty at, at yeah. Trinity, and he he said uh, on a number of occasions, uh, but once that any people group who think that they have sufficient theology to round out the theology of the church or the reading of the scripture of the church are missing God. Hmm. Uh, he, he said that doctrine and the formulation of doctrine lead to very different emphases based upon who's doing the doctrine.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And so the burden I think of being black in a context like that is you always have to learn about white people, but white people never yeah. really have to learn about you. Yeah. And, and so I have, as it relates to coming to the text, uh, have realized that the people I read, you know, in these commentaries and whatnot behind me, they are not culturally blind. They think they're neutral Mm. when they're writing. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely what this means. But they don't understand. They're coming to the text with their own cultural kind of insights. And really, the only way to check some of that stuff is to read beyond your own comfort. Absolutely. So... I never bought into there's just, you know, one way to do yeah. the exegetical practice. Yeah. Now, there is one way to parse many verbs in the Testament. I mean, so, right. hey, you know, there's no way right. to get around that. But it, but in terms of the emphasis of the passage and, and what it leads to and all that, I mean, it's like, OK. Um, I, so I have this repository of sermons in my head when I come to Ted's. And now even more so where I've heard passages explained and heard them explained and applied differently than what I'm reading in the class. Mm -hmm. And and the grace of God to me is when I got to Trinity, I didn't start to judge my orientation based upon what I was learning at Trinity. Mm -hmm. I judged Trinity based upon my Mm -hmm. orientation. A lot of students of color come in and they start to critique their orientation as if their pastors were not faithful or their teachers were not solid or were not biblical because they have stepped into this kind of princely, queenly, scholarly community. And now all of a sudden this revelation is, is the best that there is. I never struggle with that. Hmm. Thank God. And, and I, I give that to other students now as it relates to the actual preaching exercise in this repository of sermons, I have and I encourage your students to those of who are interested in preaching to listen to a wide swath of preaching and preachers. Um, and so for me, I'll name some. There, there is Ralph Douglas West, who is one of the Prince of Preachers. He's the pastor of the Church Without Walls in Houston, Texas. There's Maurice Watson, who passes the Metropolitan uh, Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., there And I met and came to know and love Crawford Loritz at Trinity. He mm-hmm. pastors uh, the Roswell Street Church in, in uh, Atlanta there. And then uh, there are some other historic names like Sandy Ray, Gardner Taylor, E.K. Bailey, uh, Melvin Wade. Uh, the, these are all voices that are swirling around in my head. And at the same time, I was listening to people like Joe Stoll who is the president at Cornerstone in Grand Rapids. And uh, who else was I listening to other than than Joel Stoll? Oh, um, Ravi's not necessarily, was not necessarily a a preacher per se, but I was listening uh, to quite a bit of Ravi Zacharias uh, at the time as well. And some other more popular preachers like David Jeremiah. I wasn't like in the John Piper camp and that kind of like, you know, this is the best preaching I ever heard. That wasn't me at all. and and with all due respect, Dr. Piper, we love you. But that just wasn't my yeah. my, my, my deal. Um, and then I listened to preachers outside of my camp. So R.W. Shambach is a name that may not ring familiar to a lot of people, but he's an old Pentecostal uh, white preacher, friends with old man Osteen, not Joel Osteen, but Joel's father, that, like they were friends. And he just had a kind of power of God, tenor and tone, to his preaching that awakened faith. And I came to see the faith was not cerebral, but, but it was really, it was really in the heart and in the confidence one has in God. So I've got all of these rivers kind of coming through and to, and, and on any given passage, I'm trying um, to read or listen to whoever I know that has preached that passage. Yeah and trying to see from what angle they've come at it so that, you know, my preaching is not predictable. And, and my you know, if you do exegesis the same way that you've been taught, you're going to land at the same kind of sermon outline mm-hmm. that everybody else has mm-hmm. uh, who's come to it. And then it becomes stale and dry and boring. And to some degree, in some context, people just tune you out mm-hmm. so they can't even be affected by it. Yeah. But if you listen to the imagination of preaching that, that comes out of the voices of people, maybe even outside of your tradition, <laughs> oh, my goodness, it'll, it'll quicken your own preaching. Yeah. It'll make it come alive. That's
2: great.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, could you tell us, Charlie, I mean, how did you uh, develop as as a preacher in addition to hearing these voices? I mean, what were some of the ways that you have honed your craft over the years? Um, and maybe what are what are some goals for you? You're saying that you don't feel like you've arrived. So, Oh, not what, at all. What, what, yeah. that? <laughs> I, <laughs> what kind of development are you I am not everyone
3: at? else out
2: there. <laughs>
1: you <laughs> I have not <laughs> yeah. preached my,
3: my best sermon. And I, so I'm after a voice. I'm haunted by a voice that I hear in my head. I don't have it yet, but I hear it and I, and I'm after it. Um, so to, to answer your question, real people make real preachers better feedback. Standing in front of actual real people. And I'll never forget this. So I'm, I, was, I uh, was interning at a church in Rockford, the New Zion Baptist Church in Rockford. Pastor Caleb Copeland, wonderful scholar. He did a deep man at, at Ted's, his lawyer, all this kind of stuff. And this was, I, I was preaching there into my earlier years in the MD program after some New Testament Greek class. So I'm preaching Luke 7 and I'm saying, you know, the woman in Luke 7 who breaks the alabaster vial, um, she's defined or she's, uh, named as uh, a sinner, Harmatolos. This, you know, so I get into this, and it's the definite. Uh, it's a something adjective without the article. And so I'm, you know, her name is synonymous with sin. You know, I'm going through all of this stuff, and he very light, and politely when it was over, said, "You know, Grandma, who was sitting on the fourth row, knows nothing about Harmatolos." You know, and um, and 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 it just started to register as I listened to people that that the book has been reaching their hearts. The Holy Spirit has been producing much fruit in their lives without the benefit of all of this stuff that I was learning and bringing to the table in technicolor. So that made me a better preacher. It it taught me how to use the technical stuff, but to leave it in the kitchen and to bring to the dining room just the effect of it. So that mm-hmm. I c- if and and this is something Dana Harris has said that has just blessed me, she said, "Hey, man, I listen to you preach she, I could tell you've done your homework and this was recently, you know like she said i could I could tell that you've done your homework with the technical stuff, but i I appreciate that all of that was not brought basically here so so for a scholar to be able to say, "Hey, I can actually discern this guy is actually- you know moving through the passage." But for grandma to sit there and, and to be able to grab hold of it, it was a, it was a time or period of trial and testing. It's, it's just the rhythm of preaching over and over and over again in front of real people who will give you real feedback. And I think, again, not buying to your, but not buying your own press has been a big deal for me. So I'm listening to people who are further down the road than I am. And I'm going, what in the world can I learn from them? I'll give you one that may shock you. I'm listening to some younger guys and uh, younger guys who do not have the kind of training, quite frankly, that I have, but they are effective communicators. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, what are they doing that I can Mm -hmm. learn from? And so I'm, I'm plugging them in, you know, on a regular basis. And I learned this at TEDS too. Every preacher needs to listen to preaching for edification, not for critique first. So I'm listening for what is God saying to me? And then after that, I can go back and go, okay, now I'm learning, you know, X, Y, and Z from it. And and then one other thing is, uh, like yesterday, I read a sermon uh, the Gardner Taylor wrote from Joshua when Rahab sticks the red rope outside of her window. And so I'm reading some of the heroes and sheroes of, of preaching some Barbara Brown Taylor. Um, and what's the Methodist guy, William Willimon. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I am reading preaching at the same time as I'm listening to it and I'm reading people who very likely at times my congregation will never listen to They Just either not in the context for it or that person is, is gone. And so I'm mining those gems and those nuggets H.B. Charles has to say, he said, there are no better preachers. There are just better libraries. Um, mm. I do not totally agree with that. I do think some people are just gifted yeah. and God has made. But the point from it is, if you work at that library too, as it relates to preaching, it's no harm in taking from the great insight of other preachers yeah. and making it your own. Oh, that's really good.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, Charlie, I have so many questions I want to ask you, but... Um... Maybe, maybe let me just squeeze in one more. You are, um, you are one of Ted's beloved grads, MDiv, PhD. You're ministering here in the city of Chicago. Uh, you're a friend of Ted's. You've, you you do some adjunct teaching at Ted's. Uh, you've earned the right, I think, to be able to say, uh, um, Ted's, this is what I here. I would here's how I would love to see you grow. Here's how I would love to see, sort of like the vision of Ted's continue, uh, but also maybe develop and expand. Like what? What would? What would be? Maybe some uh, some hope you might have for us as we do theological education uh, up yeah. here on the. I North got a Sufers. lot of hope. Yeah,
3: I got I got a lot of hope, and and part of it is when we logged onto this call and I saw you, in Madison. Um, my heart. Leap, And we joked about this before we started recording, Um, but the fact that Madison is there and um, the fact that you are there gives those students. I've heard some of the stuff you talked about in your class from students. I know, Josh, who have been there. And I just I just said, man, I wish my New Testament profs said some stuff remotely close to that. No, true story. Uh And I don't want to go into the details on the recording, but but who you see in front of you teaching, sends a message mm. to you yeah. about who who actually can be an authority. And so for me, it was just a bunch of white guys for the most part. And then there was Dana Harris <laughs> who, you know, blessed our lives. But to see that multiply yeah. is a big deal. I also think that Ted's best days are in front of her if some strategic moves are made here. Mm-hmm. So if you got somebody like Madison and yourself, and and then, you know, Watson Jones is finishing his PhD here Um, He pastors in Chicago. Eric Rivera has one. Um, I have one by the grace of God. If you see these kinds of voices and faces being used to teach at Trinity, it's it's going to be or it can be a place like none other around the country. Um, So I, I, I think just the collection of a younger, more diverse faculty. Given the freedom to build a new curriculum mm. would make TEDs an all the more amazing place. I think money follows ministry, so even the money challenges at a lot of our institutions, which a lot of our Christian institutions are are wrestling with, the money stuff can be overcome as a new generation starts to be reached and as a compelling vision is laid forth, people will give to that. That you look at George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And Ahmaud Arbery killed by, in my opinion, a kind of racist denim that yet flows through the veins of the American justice system, if that's what you want to call it. The most prophetic witness of the church today for evangelism, our prophetic voices, I should say, the, the best witness for evangelism are people who have a strong grip on God mm-hmm. and his word, but who also have a, a keen awareness of what's going on in culture and society. It's also not lost on me, Josh, that there are some Ed Ted's who have ties with white nationalists. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about faculty, mm-hmm. but I'm but I'm saying, you know, some students who accuse people like, you know, the Mosaic program mm-hmm. for being woke or too and like that's the new bad word. Yeah. Um, and, and so there is a uh, there is a a big sense in which you and I have a, a wonderful opportunity. And yet great challenge mm-hmm. at the same time in front of us. And, and so I would love to see Ted's bring back some of its alumni yeah. more regularly. Manuel Scott yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is another who is, you know, finishing the PhD program and put them to work, put us to work right away. And, and then we'll see. We'll see what God yeah. will do. That's my
2: pitch. Amen. I'd be with it.
3: I'd I support it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, amen. I um, Earlier, when you were talking about, you know, strong commitments to scripture and to social justice, I mean, I, I think I've said before, like, that's my hope for Trinity that we could embody that uh, going forward. Yeah.
3: I, I'm with you. I'm sorry. That was, that was curiosity, but I appreciate the fact that that's part of your burden, Madison. And let me just say, it starts with the burden. It starts with, the, like, you ever heard somebody preach and you go, oh, that was a nice sermon. But there was no burden in it. There, there's no there's no pull in it. And I think that's what our leadership and our fa- and really faculty, y'all change the the environment. It's, it's not just administration, yeah. but where your burden is, that gets translated into the kind of scholars
2: you produce. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. All right. I'm going to squeeze in my last question on a lighthearted note. All right. Charlie, you've got uh, two places you can take me for lunch. Within two miles of uh, Progressive, where are you taking me? I'm gonna take you to Sweet Maples Cafe. Right. It's it's probably just
3: a bit more than two miles, Close but it's enough, uh, right? but or or right in it. Yeah, it's at Taylor and Lumis, okay. and they have the absolute best. On Friday, today is Friday. They do a catfish and egg special, and they have this like salmon roll pancake uh, around this time of year. Where you gonna have to run three miles when you get done eating <laughs> it? But it is. It is absolutely fantastic. Say it again. And then, yes, yeah, Sweet Maples Cafe. Sweet Maples Cafe. All right. Sweet Maples Cafe, right. and uh, and and then there's a the Chicago Staples. I don't know if you get into corned beef and pastrami, but Manny's is not. Manny's yeah. Deli is yeah. not too far. Yeah.
2: Okay. No
3: Harold's. So chicken. I just got to throw that. Man, listen. No Harold's is a. So Josh has had Harold's, <laughs> and Madison, when you come, we will do that. All right, good, I so can't wait. so so we will do that, and then there's a place in High Park called Virtue um, that that I would take nice. you guys to. Uh, so there, there are a number yeah, of them, yeah. and I'm a, really some holes in the wall. If you gave me a few more miles, I'd take you to Home of the Hoagie, which is down on 111th and True. Now you're gonna stand out, yeah, when you go. Yeah. But that's good I'm for okay you with that, because
1: yeah, we'll be it's okay. not yeah. the first
3: time. I know, I know, you're okay with that, but there are a lot of people who aren't used to standing yeah. out. Just because they show up, but that that's good. I would take you, and uh, again, and then probably is not the best for your cholesterol,
2: but it would be fantastic. Uh, you know, I know Can't these wait. places on the north side, but I, you know, I just uh, I, we, I need, I need to, I need to go to Progressive more, and it will make Amber happy. Let's do too, it. You know,
3: let's do uh, it. Uh, let's let's pray this pandemic comes to an end, and uh, and then would love to have you guys. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh, Charlie, we didn't give you space to talk about your book. So actually, here's the last question. I mean, sorry, Josh, I don't no, want to you know, trump your I just uh, had to get food my food question, question but... in at some
2: point, and I, I knew time was slipping
1: <laughs> yeah. away. Charlie, before we go, will you tell us just a little bit about your book? I want to make sure that we give you yeah. space to be able to plug that before we go.
3: No, I appreciate it. So I'm under contract with InVarsity Press, and I'm behind schedule. I'm like three chapters in on a six-chapter piece. It's called What Have Justice to Do with Righteousness? Mm-hmm. And it essentially is is it opens with making an argument for what is a better Christian worldview than that which we've just been told is the Christian worldview, right? And then it moves to an etymological and theological exploration of the words justice and righteousness in the Old Testament and New Testament. Then it looks at a kind of symbiotic relationship between Martin King and Billy Graham. Wow. It's two hmm. people who one is lauded to be orthodox and yet is rather conservative in politics and justice issues. And the other who some would say is not so orthodox, which I don't agree with, but who is forward pushing and moving in matters of social justice. And the question becomes, especially as a black scholar, I would, like I wouldn't have a right to vote if it were just left up to James Boyce and to the Southern Baptist, mm-hmm. you know, and it's the whole Billy Graham camp. I wouldn't. So why is it that people who are accused of not having the highest and best theology actually care more about people who look like me and our ability to flourish on earth than those who have a supposed high view of scripture? Now, you could go back to Richard Baxter and Cotton Mather and make that argument, to be honest, to Puritan American culture, but we're trying to make it within the 1960s there. And then it moves on to talk about why are we afraid of a so-called social gospel? I I am one who thinks that the gospel does not need adjectives. So social gospel, prosperity gospel, I'm all there. We, we don't need them, but the gospel does need application. And so what a lot of people think uh, or take a Walter Rauschenbusch kind of view of social gospel and that, that kind of thing, or who get into Marxism, I don't care about none of that. Our fear of that or their fear of that has made them antisocial with the gospel
2: mm-hmm.
3: as, as not, giving them the kind of groundwork to fight injustice and to stand on truth. And so we're trying to debunk those things uh, with this book and the feedback so far from the editor has been good. Um, it, it, it starts off real strong. We're trying to keep the voice from waning, you know, as the chapters come along and, but who's got time for all of that? You know, it's like, Hey, I'm preaching every week yeah. <laughs> and all of this other stuff. So it'll Lord will, and it'll be out next year if I'm able to finish the draft the full first draft this year it should be able
2: to be out next year it's exciting
0: oh, but y'all know
2: yeah, that exciting. y'all write books y'all know how that yeah, life yeah but my is. voice just kind of wanes
1: I got it. Yeah,
2: <laughs> right
3: here saved by hospitality I'm looking oh, at it oh
2: thanks Charlie I
1: appreciate All right.
3: that yeah Appreciate you guys. Oh, thank yeah.
1: you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, thank you so much, Charlie, for joining us, listeners. I hope that you will take Josh or you know take Josh's advice and check out Charlie's preaching. If you're not familiar with it already, you can follow Charlie on Twitter and uh, continue to to follow along with his uh, flourishing career. Um, and as he develops as a preacher, though, uh, well, we can uh, talk more about whether Charlie's arrived or or you know oh, no. the development that he has to <laughs> okay, do. Okay. But nevertheless, uh, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Thanks to our producer, uh, Curtis Pierce, as always. Thanks to Lauren Januzik for her hard work. And again, thanks to all of you. Um, That's just the forward.
0: Forward is a podcast hosted by faculty at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. You can subscribe to our newest episodes on your preferred podcast app or at forwardpodcast.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Forward Podcast to get updates and additional links to content. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School is located 25 miles north of Chicago, with extension sites across the country and online. Trinity educates men and women to engage in God's redemptive work in the world by cultivating academic excellence, Christian faithfulness, and lifelong learning. You can find more information at teds.edu.